This is Jim Harmer, and you are listening to the Improved Photography Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the most historic photos of all time, plus what is Adobe up to with the speed of Lightroom and your questions. But before we do that, we want to thank two companies for helping to support today's podcast, Shutterstock, is a great way to illustrate whatever you do on the web. We're all media creators. And so whether you need video clips or music tracks or stock photos, that you can get it all right there royalty-free from Shutterstock. Take advantage today with twenty with a 20% discount the company is offering for a limited time at Shutterstock.com slash improve. And by Squarespace. Squarespace is the way, the company that makes my website and helps me to keep it easy to up to, to keep up to date and beautifully designed with 24/7 customer support and great prices you can start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code improve to get 10% off your first purchase Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Improved Photography Podcast. Today, I'm talking with the professor, Brent Bergherm. Hey, Brent, how are you? Hello, doing well. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, uh, Brent, today we are going to talk about a little bit of photo history. It's very different from what we normally do in a podcast, but I actually mm-hmm. thought it was a pretty cool idea. Um, most of what we talk about is how-to and gear and, and uh, kind of the current stuff, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about just photography as art today. And so we're going to be talking about some of the most powerful and historic photos that uh, that we've seen. Uh, obviously, this list could go on forever of uh, of incredible photos, but we each picked four of our favorite photos that just like really stick out to us. And then we're going to have a little bit of a discussion on how that impacts us and some things we can do to improve uh, from that. So, Brent, if I were to just if you got one photo that you'd say this is the most iconic photo uh, ever, what would it be to you? To me, number one is Angel Adams' Moonrise, Hernandez, New Mexico. If you search that up, it's a fantastic image of this little town in New Mexico. And when we're talking about Moonrise, it's just a little bit over the horizon. You've got some clouds in the distance over the um, over the mountains. And then he chose a fairly wide angle lens. So you have the town in the lower third of the image. You've got a complete black sky in the upper a third of the image, and then the central part of the image, that's where the mountains, clouds, and moon are. It's a fantastic image and a great story behind it and how he created this image as well. Okay, tell me about it. Tell me, you got to be honest. You got to level with me here, Brent. Yeah. Let's say sub- somebody submitted this photo in a portfolio review today, and you... Mm. Um, and you, you know, you, you had no history on this or anything. This right. is not a historic photo, etc. Someone just right. took this photo and submitted it to you today. Would you be impressed with it? Would it still be the most iconic photo of all time? Oh, that's a tough situation. I could certainly see how today our our ideals have changed, our expectations have changed, and our styles have changed. So I could see this one struggling to to rise above the rest. Uh, this particular image for me, uh, back when I was first getting into photography, like many people just consumed Ansel Adams' work along with many others. And this one just always rose above for me, mostly because of that wonderfully black sky and how just starkly contrasted everything is in the foreground to that black sky. But also when you read about his 
creating the image that just adds more to it. So yeah, today I can see if this were a brand new image, I could see some difficulty having this one rise above uh, the field here. I The reason that I bring that up is not to at all throw shade on Ansel Adams or anything like that. You can't. I mean, he's... he's I mean, the name in photography. That's not my point at all. But right. but my my what I'm trying to say is that it's just incredible how the art form has changed dramatically. Because yeah. I think almost any photographer, if this just came out of your camera, you'd say, oh, way underexposed. I can't even see the stars. <laughs> and well. uh, and we would immediately go for that. But, but more than that, um, you know, the city is kind of just chunk of city down there. Uh, you know, there's not like one clear focal point down there etc uh, not not that that's right i'm just saying that for what photographers are generally trying to do today it, this photo probably wouldn't pass those rules and i just think that's right. interesting how things change well and he you say you can't see the stars but he took this during the day there'd be no chance that you'd see the stars it was the sun was just setting he, he was coming across he was with a it was either his brother or someone else, but also his son was with him. Basically, he slammed on the brakes and people were, they were just flying together to set up. He got one piece of film exposed. He flipped the film holder over and the sun went away on those gravestones in the foreground. And so he got one shot and he also didn't have his light meter with him. So there's just a, that whole case of saying Ansel Adams is an absolute master because this one still came through. And when you read, I encourage people to go read the story to con continue on because his development process is really intriguing as well. So it's, there's, there's more to it than just the image, and the image came out really well, especially for the day back in 1945. Uh, this is a phenomenal image. So it's, it's a good story. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. All right. My, um, probably the, the photo when I just think of an iconic photo, the one that, uh, that has impacted me more than any other photo uh, it's called Vulture and the Little Girl. Um, it's, I mean, like, it, it can make me cry on demand. <laughs> it's so sad. Uh, it's this tiny little girl just kind of crumpled up on the ground, face first on the ground, and a vulture behind her. Um, and she's just skin and bones uh, from the... Uh, this was in South Sudan in 1993. Um, there was a, a civil war there, and the people were just starving. Uh, the, the photograph um, was taken by Kevin Carter, and he said that uh, even at the aid station, at the UN aid station, uh, it was about 20 people an hour uh, who were dying there. Uh, just everyone oh. was starving. Uh, and it's just... Uh, so impactful because of just the scene there. When he took the photo, uh, he actually waited about 20 minutes and walked really slow to not scare away the vulture uh, to capture that, uh, to capture the vulture in the photo and wanted to capture the vulture with its wings spread out and the vulture never spread its wings. Um, uh, but but uh, eventually he you know took the photo waited 20 minutes and then he eventually scared away the vulture and left uh, the the they were told not to touch the the famine victims uh, for fear of spreading disease and so he just left uh, uh it's just so sad um and so this photo i think just captures incredibly well that moment in time and that story and so that's why it stands out to me yeah that's definitely an incredible image there's a strong story is told here and the vultures is slightly out of focus and the, the girl is nice, tight in focus. So that helps, you know, give you that sense of the attention and where your eye is to be, what, where you're supposed to be looking. It's a mm -hmm. good image.
And we're, of course, going to have links to all of these photos in the show notes. If you just go to Improve Photography, click podcast, and then you'll see this episode uh, there if you're wanting to see any of these images. But I, I'm hoping that most of these you're actually going to remember. Once we describe them, you'll uh, kind of be able to, p- to picture them. But if there are any that are new to you, uh, then be sure to go to the show notes because it's really incredible. I realize we're, you know, with audio talking about visual images, um, but but there's a reason, uh, I think, as we go through some of these uh i'm hoping to have an interesting discussion at the end all right what's your next one brent this one i almost didn't put in just because it's to me it feels a little cliche just because of how popular and famous it has become but dorothy lang's migrant mother is a great image when you look at this it's a nice tight zoomed in the children are kind of cowering they're looking away so you can see the the two on either side of her and I believe she's holding an infant uh, but you can barely see the infant's face and so there's certainly this idea of despair this idea of just kind of what's happening next what's going to come next and so this image was taking taken in the middle of the of the uh, depression type era by a farm service administration photographer but this is one of those images there was lots of FSA photographers and people should look that up, that collection up. It's available on the Library of Congress website. And this is just one of those that rose above throughout history, uh, rose above the rest. Certainly it's a powerful image, but there's lots of other excellent, strong imagery in that collection as well. Cool. The one that uh, that I selected was Falling Man on 9-11. Uh, this has obviously been seen, everybody knows this photo. I mean, this has been seen millions and millions of times. Uh, this is the man falling from the from the tower. Uh, I, I don't know if we know if the man jumped or fell, uh, but you can just see him kind of just plummeting in midair um, and then the, the straight lines of the building uh, in the background. Uh, it's incredible because of the moment that it captured uh, and just to me just captured the helplessness of the event. Um, and, and so I, I think it's, it's incredible for that reason. Yes, the, the simplicity of the image, it's very isolating. You, you can't help but focus on, like you said, the helplessness. It's just, it's, it's definitely a powerful image. Cool. Another one that uh, that really stood out to me is called Last Jew of Venitza. Um, mm. This one uh, is pr- maybe a little bit lesser known, uh, maybe just because of the age, uh, but it, it's an incredible photo of uh, of a Jewish man uh, in Venitza uh, who, you know, the, the soldiers have a gun to the back of his head and he's just kneeling right on the edge of a, ma- of a mass grave. Uh, and the, this photo was labeled on the back, Last Jew of Venitza, um, and later found. And, and so it's, it's incredible. Uh, I think just again, because of the moment that it captured and that it, it so, it so showed that story of just one person, like the last, um, there, uh, it, it was a, it's a perfect image to tell the story of what was happening in world war II. And so I, I, I really love that image for that reason. Yep. Going back to, 9-11, the ground zero flag raising, while the one you mentioned earlier, Jim, is definitely one of despair and helplessness, this one to me gives a sense of hope. You've got some uh, firefighters, some firemen that are raising uh, the U.S. flag on some debris. Uh, th- this is another one of those images where it's nicely tight, 
it's zoomed in, it's really tight. You've got the massive debris as a background, but these guys are, are raising the flag and it gives a lot of sense of uh, pride and uh, some hope as well, I think. Yeah, definitely reminiscent of the raising raising the flag on Iwo Jima, the sure. very, very famous photo uh, that eventually became a, a statue as well. Uh, and it's, yeah, I, I think it's it's a just the moment that tells the story of what happened. Like you see the devastation and you see the the promise of moving forward in the shot, uh, just very symbolic uh, of what was what was happening at the time. Uh, you know, an, another one that that you had listed here was Steve McCurry's Afghan girl, and yep. uh, that that's just an incredible photo as well. I think everybody knows that she just because just the look on her face is incredible, and then when you find out kind of what that photo means, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's even more impactful. Well, and how he, you know, this is back in 84, certainly long, long before anything digital was happening. And so he takes the shot and he doesn't have the luxury we have today of saying, oh, yeah, I got the shot. That's going to be great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, she, you know, she was only sitting there for just a little bit. He only got a few photos of her. Uh, but that was the image that he knew uh, he needed. And then he had to smuggle. He, he smuggled film in. He entered the country illegally. He had to smuggle the film out, and so he's sewing it into his his clothing so he can hide it when he's searched and all that stuff. Uh, it's just amazing efforts that McCurry went through to get that image. Yeah, just the fear on her face is just, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure everybody, uh, as we've kind of gone through some photos of time uh, throughout time that have stood out to us, I'm sure everybody has other photos that, that really stuck with them, uh, that, that really mean something to them. The reason that I kind of want to had wanted to have this discussion today, though, um, is uh, not just for show and tell, but to talk about what photography is doing today and what what exactly does it take to stand the test of time. Because I feel like today, let's say I were to become the best landscape photographer alive today. You know, I'm producing the best, prettiest, most beautiful landscapes out there. If that were to happen, I still think um, that that my work is going to die with me. You know, when you go to a gallery like Peter Lick, Peter Lick's galleries are gorgeous. Uh, the presentation of the photos is just tremendous. The lighting, the framing, the the prints, the everything, they're just incredible. But they're, they're really not doing anything different in the art form. It's not a different technique or anything. They're just really nice photos that are excellently presented. And again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not talking down about anybody. I'm just saying they're beautiful photos, but it's not really anything different than what lots of other photographers are also creating. And so, uh, what do you, what do you think it is, Brent, about these other photos that we've that we're talking about that uh, that so separates them from just the photos that we take every day that are pretty, even really good, uh, but you know, our grandkids might care about, but nobody else, right? I think a lot of that certainly has to do with the story behind the image, whether it's the story of the person who created the image or the story of what's happening. In Peter Lick's example, when I was in uh, Miami Beach a couple of weeks ago, I actually visited one of his galleries. And you're right, the photos are absolutely gorgeous. Two or three stores down, there was another photographer from uh, Portland area here in Oregon, and he had just as good a work 
as Peter Lick, but I'd never heard of this guy before. Mm-hmm. And both of these guys have some great stories and they've created uh, some, somehow they've created some kind of following behind them as individuals. So whether it's the individual that is able to create uh, a story or some kind of gravitas around them or the event itself, uh, something that's happening that you're able to photograph, uh, both of those items I think play into it. So I, so what I was thinking is, are there, are there famous works that have really stood the test of time just because they're beautiful just because they're beautiful uh none on our list as we as you and me thought about uh the best photos that that we could think of not the best the most inspiring or memorable etc right um none of these are on the list just because they're really pretty in fact i wouldn't want to print any of these photos and have them on my wall um and so i i think these are are there because they're they're moments in time and they're telling a story of that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, then I started thinking about painters. You know, are there paintings that have stood the test of time for generations just because they're beautiful? Can you think of any? Well, the first one that popped to mind was the Mona Lisa. Uh, some people would argue that's not very beautiful, but it, it certainly has a certain beauty to it. Uh that's an image that's been years since I've been to the Louvre, but I've actually seen that one in the flesh as well. I have as and well. Well, I had a one in three chance of seeing that in on in real life. All right, I, because I, I think they rotate that one. I think on some days they show fakes. Oh, okay. I could have seen a fake. That's that's completely possible. Yeah, I, if I remember right, I could be <clears throat> wrong, wrong on this, but I seem to remember that they show the real one on one day and then they rotate in fakes so that okay. if somebody tried to do a smash and grab, whatever, it would just, you, you know, yeah. you never okay. know if it's the real one. I think I well, remember hearing that. And and the UV light will eventually destroy the image anyway, so I can see, but it should be behind glass. It was behind glass when I looked at it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> excuse me but there's certainly some beauty to that expression she has there's beauty to the technique that the painter used to uh, create the scene why that one has risen above the rest though is it out of sheer beauty i'm not sure i can say that because i can also think of other paintings uh there's one by botticelli i think it's venus uh de milo Uh, that's a very nice image a very nice painting and there's I don't know. It's it's hard to exactly pin it for me to understand exactly why certain works rise above the others. Yeah, as I look at old famous paintings, which I've I've grown to really enjoy doing, um, it's it's usually the imp- more impressionistic style that mm-hmm. really sticks out. Um, when a painting is made just as photorealistic as they can do, um, it, it usually doesn't succeed all that well. Um, right. Usually there are things that are, you know, uh, the the paint is slopped on a little bit more. It's a little bit more gross, less, less fine detail and stuff uh, than when you would see in, in a photo. You know, if you think of Starry Night, for example, very famous sure. photo, and it would be a beautiful scene. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful photo, a beautiful painting. But uh, it, it's the how they've taken what's real uh, and and uh, put put some impressionism on it, put some um, styling on that. It's something very different than just the best somebody could do at painting a night scene. Absolutely. And my favorite painter is going to be Claude Monet with his lily ponds specifically, but he also did a bunch of other stuff. 
where that's not that photorealism, but it's really about the the artist creating something that is meaningful to them. And I think that's what photographers need to uh, at least be aware of. I don't want to say you must always focus on this, but creating something that is meaningful to you and search out what that is. And I think you're going to at least find some peace in your own imagery and your own image making. But I think other people might find that as well. That's where people might say, oh, there's something unique about that. I might not be able to put my thumb on it, but there's something unique about that. And that's uh, something to certainly strive for, I think. So the now let's let's let the rubber hit the road a little bit. Now that hopefully we've we've kind of taken you on onto a journey of of kind of what we're thinking about uh, art and how it's lasted. I wonder if it wouldn't be helpful for for me and many photographers uh, to focus on ways to present um, to present reality or present what's there in a little bit more of an impressionistic style. And there are, you know, photography is a relatively new art for art form. It's really not that old when you compare it to art in general. And things like, you know, when you go to a museum or, or a gallery, photography is really just starting to make its way into some of those things. There are certainly tons of photography galleries, but just like when you go to an art, to an art gallery or a museum, it's just now that we're starting to see more and more photography make it in there, uh, but still not nearly as much as you would see paintings in a museum. You know what sure. I mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's always, uh, I guess you can say, a separation in the photography uh, recently went to Seattle Art Museum and they had some fantastic some fantastic works uh, up there for some impressionistic works. And certainly the photos are always treated separately. And uh, certainly I don't believe anyway that I'm complaining. I don't, I don't view this as a complaint. It's just saying what it is. The photography, what, what gets me though is when artists or when people look at a, at a picture and say, oh, it looks like a painting. And I just look at, I just hear that. And I'm like, I don't get it. Uh, why is the why is the picture more important because it looks like a painting or vice versa when the painting looks like a photo all of a sudden for some people it rises to a certain level of awesomeness because that painting looks like a photo mm-hmm. uh, I think they do need to be able to live on themselves but they should also feed off themselves and uh, to have one rise to a certain level in one's mind simply because it looks like something else I don't know that that seems weird to me there are some techniques in photography um, that do help to remove some of the realism and and uh, just lifelikeness of a photo sure. and help it to feel a little bit more. So you can just, I guess, enjoy the artist's rendition of, of that thing and not just mm-hmm. be distracted by this is what <clears throat> this chunk of earth looked like at this time, right, you know? Right, right. Um, and... And to me, that that really does make a photo feel more real, more uh, artistic uh, and mm-hmm. interesting when that's done. To some extent, I can see why HDR became so popular uh, in its day. And I think one of those reasons is this, that it did take out a little bit of the reality um, and presented Certainly. something a little bit different than just lifelikeness. Now, obviously, it had drawbacks of just looking a little nuts most of the time as well, depending on how it was done. Um, and so I think that's kind of why it has started to die out. But I do think there's something there um, in taking not and just making things not look so 
lifelike, uh, so raw in how it is. You know, the Orton effect to some extent is doing this same thing. That's where you're kind of adding a little bit of blur on the end of the image after you've done post-processing it. You kind of blur it just slightly, especially around, uh, you know, light sources and things. And it just kind of gives it a fairy tale kind of feel uh, to the photo. Uh, and it, it just takes away that raw lifelikeness. Yeah, that kind of thing. Certainly one, one technique to... Uh, to use for doing that. Another technique I like to do is simply drag the shutter and <clears throat> have that shutter, I don't know, half second, a second, you have to experiment, but just kind of take your scene and make it blurry on purpose uh, with shutter, you know, shutter lag, shutter, shutter blur. Sure. Rather than blurry out of focus, I don't mean that, but blurry uh, via your shutter. And whether it's horses galloping uh, and you go for a slow shutter speed, uh, that can make her for a really interesting and powerful image. Uh, that's just one item to think of off the top of my head. So there's lots of different ways to. Sure. Or I think light painting can help to create this as well. Um, Mm -hmm. There are, uh, there are some neat techniques that uh, when used appropriately can help photographers to, to at least get uh, that a little bit. I think it's just the lifelikeness. It's too, it's too real. It's too much. Just exactly what someone would see standing there, even if it's beautiful. Uh, And it it just, it doesn't feel as artistic. I I, I don't know how to explain it. One thing that kind of got me thinking about this was I remember years ago, I was watching a kind of behind the scenes Disney thing. And it was, uh, shoot what's that movie uh hercules i was kind of showing how they how they you know animated and made hercules uh which i I think was one of the one of the earlier digital ones if i remember right anyway they had this scene where they were you know there were all these serpents and stuff coming after hercules and the animator said after we make it it looks too realistic and so we actually kind of blur out uh the detail in the process before before it finishes and it kind of clicked for me i thought Mm -hmm. hey there's something to that. The goal is not always to just look as raw and lifelike as possible. That's right. Um, some of these other techniques can give you an edge, even though it looks less lifelike. Yeah. One thing that I always point out to my students in class is something that Ansel Adams said, going back to, we started with Ansel Adams, uh, uh, going back to him. He was asked about, you know, what is it when he's creating an image? What is it that's going through his mind? And he said a nice, very simple thing, and that is he wants to convey what he saw and felt. Of course, the and felt part is what we're talking about here. How can you go beyond just that static of a record of this is what the object is? Certainly want to be realistic to what the object is, but the communication of what you felt, that's what every individual has the ability to do and encourage them to seek that out and find it for themselves. That's a that's a great way of describing it, Brent. It's uh maybe it is that the raw life likeness can can mask a little bit of the mood uh, of yeah. the photo, and when you Absolutely. take out a little bit of that that detail or just raw life likeness, uh, it can help to to focus a little bit more attention on what the photo should feel like. You bet. You bet. Well, cool. I've kind of enjoyed this discussion. Very different <clears throat> oh, from what man. we normally do, but I I, I enjoyed that. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, we want to get a little bit more practical into answering your questions on the second half of this show. But before we do that, we want to take a second and thank Squarespace for their support of the Improved Photography Podcast. Squarespace has been a great supporter of the podcast for a long time, uh, and they have a tremendous product. At Squarespace, you can make your own photography website, a business website, uh, or a blog, an online store, whatever it is you want to create. Squarespace has great 24-7 customer support. You even get a unique domain, which strengthens your brand and makes it easier for visitors to find you. Plus, Squarespace has award-winning templates to make sure your website is beautiful. There's nothing to install, nothing to upgrade, nothing to patch, which is what I really enjoy about it. Think of them as your very own IT department. So make your next move and start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code IMPROVE to get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's Improve, I-M-P-R-O-V-E. And thank you also for providing the service for me. I've been a longtime Squarespace user. All right. We have some questions that have come in from listeners of the Improved Photography Podcast. We asked, uh, I guess, last week for for questions and we weren't able to get through all of them. So Bob Fischel asked the first question. He says he's looking for tips on an art showing, including how to choose which photos to feature. Uh, They are travel photographers. And also what methods for printing them for sale. Uh, You know, wood, metal, paper or whatever he got, uh, he's been using ProDPI and he's wondering uh, what, what the best way to do it was. Have you ever done an art gallery or a I gallery have. showing? I have. Oh, you have? So walk me through. I've never done one. It's on my bucket list, actually, of things to do. I, I had an opportunity. <coughs> I thought I might do one last year, but I was too busy with things. Uh, so someday I would love to do this. So tell me, w- walk us through the process. Okay, sure. So the I think the first thing I should probably mention is I print my own items. So I print on paper and canvas. I have been very much intrigued by metal prints, but I have yet to bite the bullet on that. So as far as answering that question as to what methods to print for sale, I would certainly uh, talk to the gallery uh, owner or representative and see what they say moves because they're the ones, they're certainly interested in selling your work. You're interested in creating awesome work. They're interested in selling it. And uh, they would have an idea <clears throat> of what their clientele is looking for. So getting back to the original or to the first point of the question though, tips for showing, including uh, how to choose the photos. And they say they mostly travel. I mean, I'm a travel photographer. Hallelujah. This is right up my alley. Uh, what I would look for is to try and sequence the images and to best be able to show the story of, of the, the, pro, the, the journey, the area, the subject matter, whatever it is that, it, that you're showcasing. And then it depends on how many images I'm able to show. And also, I would have to take a tour of the gallery and get an understanding for what's the user experience as you walk into the gallery. There's lots of things to consider when you show then the first image, is it going to be collected with three or four images or is it a solo image? And then they go to the next wall and there's a collection of three or four images. How that, big, so, how big would you usually print? <clears throat> that plays, a, that does a lot of, uh, goes a lot into it. So I would usually print myself in the neighborhood of 11 by 16 inches. That's kind of small. But, but certainly 11, eight by 10 
is as a fine size as well. Just depends on what you're going for. And I would always have a couple that are very large. So I'd like to give the the viewer a little bit of a difference, a little bit of a um, a little bit of a variety in the impact that they're going with. So I also had <clears throat> a couple images uh, in one showing that were like uh, 24 by 36. And so that's a nice, uh, well, huge impact uh, type image, but those are expensive to make. So it just depends again on what your budget is and how many you need to, how much real estate on that wall you need to fill up. Uh, yeah. If you're, if you're printing a lot of photos, which you're going to be, if you're going to do a, a solo show, um, one resource that you could try <laughs> is check out local libraries. If you're in a, if you're in a bigger market, uh, you know, if you're in a bigger city, um, at least in Meridian here in Idaho, we have a, a tech library that kind of has, you know, they have like 3d printers and stuff like that, a little podcasting setup, etc. And they have a really excellent, nice Canon wide format printer. Um, and you can print really beautiful photos on it and they're like two bucks to print like a, a 24 by 36 it's like nothing um wow. and so if you're going to be printing you know 20 or 30 this is going to cost several hundred dollars yeah and so look for a resource like that if you don't have your own printer you know because a wide format printer is going to be you know four grand and up uh two grand and up two grand you can start to do stuff but ah, it's going to be more like that four thousand dollar range uh before you're going to get a really nice photo printer wide format um so look look for a library or a local print shop uh that may do <coughs> photo printing and not you know it's going to be different than a, a sign print or something like that of course you Definitely. want that great detail uh but you may find a, a printer somewhere local that can do it much cheaper yeah, even our shipping facilities, whether it's um, going to be a FedEx Kinkos or uh, we have a, an off-brand one here in town, they actually offer prints with a nice Canon printer. And I'm not going to say they would know about uh, calibrating so you get right the right color, but I would assume the price is going to be right. And so right, but uh, the you, other you thing could probably is if, afford... If the, yeah, sorry. Go yeah, I was just going to say, you could probably afford to test it out and just say, okay, just print it straight up and then you can tweak the image and you can get the, uh, the better results because hopefully they'll have consistency in using their printer. And so it's going to probably work out pretty well for you. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say, you know, if the price is right, just print a test one and then adjust your image until it looks right. Um, yeah. You know, I can print, uh, <laughs> I have the Canon Pixma Pro 100. I think I can print, print 11 by 17 is the biggest, if I remember right, uh, which is decent. But um, yeah, and you could certainly put some of those in a in a gallery showing. But it's smallish. Uh, yeah. If it's if it's a big room, uh, you you likely want you know the bigger you show them, the better they look. It's it's oh, almost yeah. always true. Yeah, but then you got to think too about you know your resolution of your camera, your sharpening technique. There's a lot of things to be considering uh, about that and read up on it. There's a fantastic book that I've read, Marketing Fine Art Photography by Alain Brio, I think is how you pronounce it, B-R-I-O-T. And he goes into grave detail about <clears throat> all these different kinds of things. And it's a good resource for that. But I want to just touch on one more thing, a little more in detail, and that is uh, how to choose which photos to feature. Really, it's just Again, I would say talk to the, the gallery uh, representative. They're going to be able to help you choose because they know their clientele. They know what's going to sell. And 
you might feel like you're selling out and you just want to show just your favorite babies. You know, it, it, it ha- I, to me, it has to be a balance. You definitely want to show what's important to you because it's your name on the sign, so to speak. You know, it's, it's your uh, reputation that's going out there. But the, the gallery owners, they also know some stuff. So talk with them and they'll give you a, a great, they'll be a great resource for you as well. Yeah, that's true. I guess, you know, knowing your audience is going to be pretty important here. <clears throat> if, if your audience is going to be not sophisticated at all art buyers, yeah. there's a, they're going to buy very different things than a sophisticated totally. art buyer or totally. uh, a photographer. A pho- if, I mean, if you're doing this, just, hey, I just want to show and be proud of my work. Uh, this right. isn't really for money kind of thing. Then right. uh, I would show very, very different things in that case than, you know, you if bet. I just want to sell photos, <coughs> man, I'm going to show as many local shots as possible because sure. people are going to want that on their house. They don't want some random barn in Kentucky if they live in Idaho. It's just, it just doesn't feel personal. It's not something they're probably going to want. They can right. get that it, when they go to Ikea, just random art. <laughs> they bet. want something local. <clears throat> and I, I just brought, came to mind uh, another photographer, Michael Kenna. Uh, if you follow his uh, Facebook postings, he just opened a gallery showing of confessionals. And that's it. Like in, a, like in a Catholic church? In various Catholic churches around the world, straight on confessionals. And so, huh. he's, just a, he's mostly a landscapist and uh, is just a different... Uh, clientele, you know, you look at his uh, pictures for his gallery showings, they're all the exact same size. So he has lots of continuity. They're about eight by 10, maybe slightly larger. And he just fills the wall in a straight line. Uh, He just packs them close and he fills the wall. They're all nicely matted, but no frames. So that can also save you a lot of money if you only do matting. Uh, But yeah, just again, talk to that, talk to your resources and, and they will give you some good ideas on what works. Cool. Isaac Goff asks, tripod or no tripod? Since he started shooting with the A7R2, he's found a lot of situations where the shutter speed is fast enough and he feels like he can shoot handheld. And so he's wondering if this is an exception to the tripod always rule. Uh, Yeah, totally. Uh, If the shutter speed is fast enough, I'm going to much prefer not to use a tripod. It's just a lot easier to shoot without a tripod. If I'm shooting portraits, I would almost never... No, just plain old never uh, use a tripod. I I just wouldn't uh, because the shutter speed is always going to be fast enough. And you need to be fast enough. You need to be responding to what the people are doing uh, when you're shooting those portraits. Now, does this A7R2, that has the in-camera stabilization? Yes. I I think. So uh, anything like that, if you're on Canon or Nikon and you've got your in-lens stabilization, that certainly can help the situation. Uh, I look at it myself as the reason for using a tripod is way different than simply just your shutter speed and making sure I get a sharp image. It's about the thought process of creating the image and the tripod definitely slows me down. Or maybe my gear is just so heavy, I can't imagine uh, lugging it around and and I, maybe I should build my biceps, but some sometimes that's the reason too. It's just you're using a big lens and you just want to not wear yourself out. But it's it's about slowing down and and uh, taking a different tack on the image that you're making. 
Yeah, another time that you may not want or that you may want a tripod, even if your shutter speed is fast enough, is with macro photography uh, or product photography, where we're talking about fine little adjustments and you're going to be working very slowly to do things. And so it's just nice to have one variable locked down. The composition is there, the focus is there, and now I can work on other things. Exactly. And especially if you get that that arsenal item and do your focus stacking, having a tripod mounted it would have been an absolute must and yeah. that would be sweet. Nick Jones says, how do I know what filter to use for what situation? Recently, he was shooting at the Bean in Chicago. In Chicago. Uh, it was low light at sunset, and the guy next to him was using a six-stop ND filter, and his photos looked great, and Nick said his photos weren't looking as good, and so he was wondering what was going on. Uh, it sounds like Nick might be a little bit of a, of a newer photographer. But this is a very good question. I mm-hmm. had many learning experiences like this, um, and my guess is why he's wanting to use an ND filter in this kind of situation is there are tons of people at the bean you will never find it empty without people and so if you choose use an nd filter you can slow your shutter speed way 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 down and the people will likely be moving and walking around and thus they vanish uh, because they're only in each spot of the picture for a fraction of the time that the shutter is open yeah and that would probably provide some kind of interesting movement we were talking earlier about the impression of things happening and this is gives the impression of people moving through rather than You've got people there uh, that can make uh, that can elevate the image to a new level. Eric Dory says, is there no love for medium format anymore? Um, well, you know, Fuji released their medium format this year and it was very, very popular. I've, Fuji was uh, extremely surprised and happy to see that. Um, it's so expensive, though, that mm-hmm. I think that keeps it out of out of the talk of most photographers, uh, the price. But also, I, you know, I've never even shot medium format, but everything I hear is it's very different and you really have to change how you shoot and, and what you do. And so um, I think the, the adjustment is tough, but I think the biggest thing is it's just expensive. And so we don't hear about it much more. Yeah, I would absolutely love to shoot it, but it's the expense. The lens is actually not that expensive, but that body is crazy. So yeah, seven grand is a good mm-hmm. deal. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, you know, Pentax, they've got uh, the 645 uh, yeah, Z, I think is the most Z, recent yep. one. Beautiful uh, opportunity they have there with that machine. Uh, Hasselblad has a mirrorless as well, but that's going to be even more expensive. So it's great, but yeah, the price is, you know, 10 grand just to get into it when you, I can get my 5D4 uh, and a nice lens for five grand. So it doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah, it's uh, the price. I, I would love, if, if the price could come down a little bit more, I, w- I would love to buy one and just, you know, use it as my primary camera for a year and just learn. I love learning new camera systems and mm-hmm. stuff. I'd love to, but a little bit too exper- expensive to experiment right now. All right. In the news desk this week, Adobe posted. So Tom Hogarty is the product manager um, and he posted a survey early this morning on the uh, on the Adobe forums, which was a survey to get user feedback about the speed of Lightroom. Uh, I I wasn't sure what to say uh, when I saw this. (laughs) I had so many different thoughts. My first thought was. Oh no, they just now figured out that speed is a problem. 
Right. Uh, I mean, we've been talking about this for years on the podcast. Uh, this has been a very serious issue in Lightroom for about two years. Um, and then I thought, no, that can't be it. Maybe what's happening is they've been working on the speed. We haven't seen hardly any updates to Lightroom in 2017. We're still using, you know, Lightroom 2015 is the CC version. And there were some updates even in 2016, you know, dot releases, feature here, feature there. And then they've just gone silent for mm -hmm. about a year on Lightroom. I mean, almost nothing has changed in Lightroom. And so my impression is they're working on a total re rewrite. They're going to come out at the end of 2017 or early 2018 and blow us all away with a complete rewrite <laughs> and a refresh of Lightroom. And then I saw this survey this morning. And I thought, oh, no, maybe that's not it. Maybe they're just now catching on. What do you think? I think it could be either one of those. I think you're onto something. There's there's a marketing issue they have to deal with too, or maybe it's a sales issue if you want to call it that. But Lightroom is the only product that's still available as a standalone or has been anyway. And I think they're wanting to let enough time go by without serious updates on Lightroom 6. And I think you have, you're onto something with a major update potentially coming out later this year or beginning of next year uh, that will be only Creative Cloud available and not going to be supporting Lightroom 6 anymore. So... I think it's going to be tied in with that as it relates to uh, the survey itself. You know, they're asking for three items, three specific, and they want you to be as clear as possible saying, you know, tell us exactly what you're doing. Like the, the 10th time you did this after doing such and such. And it's like, they're asking for some really specific things. Uh, and that's what a little bit confuses me, I guess, because really just general speed overall, I'm not one to say, to be so nitpicky, I guess, when I give feedback to a company. I just want something overall, unless there's something that's really ticking me off. And the thing that's really got me going is what uh, Jeff has been talking a lot about, and that is a calling feature. Yes. You know, give, give us that. And I think my speed issues will be largely taken care of because my biggest issue is even when I have the smart previews already written, it still takes a while to paint it on screen. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have the fastest machine in the, in the universe, and it still takes a while to show it on screen. If that preview is already written, it shouldn't take so long. So uh, they have to find a different way to cache it and they have to find uh, faster ways to get that painted on screen. But really all the other stuff, I don't have that much complaints over myself. Right. The example that he used in the survey was, um, you know, is, is the adjustment brush slow or is it after you've applied a preset and done 10 other, 10 other adjustment right. brushes and then the adjustment right. brush is slow? So that was his example of, of uh, how specific to be. Yeah. And I'm not having any issues whatsoever with sliders or develop modules. It's, it's fine. Uh, the, it, the problems that I'm seeing are import is incredibly slow. Very, yeah. very slow when you compare it to... Uh, to other programs, you know, uh, that, that are just flying with it. I did a video, I think it's been about a year now. Uh, it's, you can find it on YouTube. It's called uh, Lightroom is 600% slower at importing than other programs. Uh, and it got a lot of attention. It was kind of made the rounds on all the photo blogs. And within about half an hour of posting that video, I got an email from some higher ups at Adobe uh, that wanted to see what was going on and how I was doing my testing and what, and uh, etc. Um, so, I mean, are they aware of this? Yes, they have been for years. Um, sure. But 
but nothing has happened. Uh, the import is very slow, and the culling process, just flipping from one photo to the next, is unreasonably slow. We've talked about this lots of times. The story here is, could they possibly just now be starting in on the issue? Or my my real hope um, is that they you know, have been aware of this for a long time. They have been working on this, and that's why they've gone silent for the last year. Mm -hmm. And what they're really doing with this survey is they want to hear how we express our pain points so that Mm -hmm. when they market this new version, they can express it in the right way to say, look, we nailed your pain point. Precisely. I think that's it. They, they, that they've listened, that they've paid attention and they are undoubtedly going to find three or four, 10 different new items that they should be working on. And then they'll be able to say, this is what's coming up next. And so I think that's, you know, that's what they're, they're going for. And another thing that they're trying to do, at least I've always viewed they're trying to do is they're trying to push people to use the DNG format. Uh, at least, you know, again, not, not super huge, but that would just slow you down in the import process. Yeah. DNG uh, is much slower. You know, Even just, I don't know. It, it frustrates me that they make this thing, uh, that they've created and then it's so stinking slow to use, uh, it, it gets frustrating. Yeah, it's their format. And even after the import process, which, you know, a, to some extent is understandable if you're going to convert them all to DNG, it's going to take some time. But sure. even after that, just working on a DNG is slower than working on a CR2 yeah. file or a NEF file. I, I, it, it just is. And um, it just makes no sense. Uh, it, yeah, they're... It's it's so interesting, <laughs> and as I, I'm looking right now at the Lightroom CC 2015 change log, I mean, almost nothing has happened in 2017 to Lightroom. Uh, there was a press conference. Gosh, oh, I guess it was was it for Adobe Max about a year ago. Boy, it's been a while. When was that? Yeah. Anyway, at the press conference, they I was excited. You know, got invited to the press conference. I thought, all right, we're about to see some cool stuff. We had an NDA. And then what did they release? They took their stock photos from Adobe Stock and they've integrated it in all the products. And everybody was like, okay, you know Yay. that we're media creators, <laughs> right? And your right. announcement is that we can now sell our work for a nickel? <laughs> like, right. what? Um, and they made this big launch of it. And I, I think everybody's reaction was the same, like, fine, but this is really for you selling stock photos. This is not to help me. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't know. We'll see what happens. I'm still a Lightroom user. If March... April comes around of 2018 and we don't see this, what, what I think really needs to be a significant rewrite of Lightroom for speed, I, I think it's going to be about time for me to jump ship. Right now, I'm too invested in it. Yeah, it would be tempting for me to try and do it as well, but uh, we get such a, at the school, we get such a fantastic deal on Adobe uh, software. Uh, I'd have to really search throughout and see what's going on to before I would make a switch. Yeah. You know, I thought the same thing about, about video editing. I do quite a lot of video editing for classes on improved photography plus.com and also our YouTube channel. And I have been using Adobe premiere for years and <coughs> I, it was just, it's just been really slow. And I, I was talking to somebody who said, Oh, you got to switch to final cuts faster. The Apple 
program for video editing. And I thought, ah, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, And eventually I thought, you know what? I'm just going to buy it. I'm going to bite the bullet here and just try it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It's not even close. Uh, Adobe's Premiere is not even close to the speed of Final Cut. I can literally edit a video in half the time in Final Cut than I than I than it would take me to do in Premiere. And so when I see that, I say, you know, Adobe has vast resources. It is a large, powerful company. Um, if they really are just now starting to look at Lightroom speed, um, this is a sign that they are extremely out of touch uh, with users. And in terms of just, is this possible? Oh, heck yeah. And and that was shown to me in, in living color when I switched to Final Cut and saw the incredible speed difference um, yeah. uh, there. Anyway. All right, the doodads of the week. Uh, I have something a little bit different for you this week. It uh, actually has even little to do with with photography. But as I'm traveling to to different photo shoots, I'm trying to tie this in here, Brent. Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> as I'm traveling to photo shoots, I love listening to Audible books. No, this is not an ad, uh, but I really am just an addict. Um, so um, I published my books list of my favorite books of all time uh, and just my like one-liner review of, of a whole bunch of books. So if you are an audiobook listener and you're listen, looking for something new, then check it out. Uh, it's at improvephotography.com slash books. None of these books have anything to do with photography. They're just books that I really enjoyed. And so if you have similar tastes to me, uh, then check it out, improvephotography.com slash books. I just uh, downloaded my first audiobook, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago now, and it's it's kind of cool. Uh, I can't say I'm a complete convert yet, but it's definitely it's definitely worth trying out. So I'll be looking at that list. Cool. M- myself as well. My do that of the week is also not necessarily photography related, but it could be maybe, and that is a Bluetooth speaker by Bose. It's called the Bose SoundLink Mini. How are it's you probably- going to tie that into photography, Brent? Come on, I at it, least had it, driving between it, locations. It, <laughs> yeah, driving between locations. If you have a car that doesn't have the ability to play anything on your phone, like the audiobook you're listening to, this is a fantastic, and I literally use this just What's today that we're recording Tuesday? I literally used this yesterday on my way back from Portland, Oregon, and uh, was listening to both the podcast, uh, catching up on some back episodes because these last couple of weeks have just been crazy for me, and uh, also the audiobook I was talking about. So uh, that's um, that's my tie-in. It's a little on the more expensive side, but my goodness, the sound is awesome. I mean, Bose, you know, can't go wrong with that. So uh, the sound is excellent, and it attaches to my iPad just fine. I downloaded a movie on the uh, on the Netflix for the boys to watch uh, while we were going, and then you know this is going throughout the whole car. Uh, connected to my phone, super quick and easy. It's it's a wonderful deal. Awesome. Thank you, everybody, for your support of Improved Photography. Each Monday night, you will be getting a podcast, which is a roving episode of Tripod, our nature photography podcast, Latitude, of which Brent and uh, and Brian are, are the hosts, our travel photography podcast, Portrait Session, our portrait photography podcast, and then each Thursday night, you'll be seeing an episode of this show, the Improved Photography podcast, hitting your feed. Thanks, everybody, for your support, and we will see you in 
Well, see, ah, gosh, this happened again. I can't say another yeah. seven days anymore, Brent. All right, somebody posted the Facebook group. How do we end this show How now? Do, For now, that's a good it's question. Just, see you in a couple days. <laughs> Until next time. Until next time.